What is up, freaks? It's your boy, Marty Bent, here to introduce this rip of Tales from the Crypt. Matt joined me for this interview. We sat down with Mike Brock, who's the head of TBD under the block umbrella. And we talked about TBDEX, the decentralized exchange they're uh, building uh, at TBD to, to create better on-ramps for people looking to get into Bitcoin. Fascinating conversation. Hit on philosophy, hit on history, and on a bunch of things. I think you guys are going to like it. It was brought to you by good friends at the motherfucking Cash App. Cash Apps help you stack sats, send sats, receive sats, and sell sats, if you so please. Sats are the standard on the app. There's 100 million sats in one whole Bitcoin. You don't have to buy a whole Bitcoin. You don't have to buy a fraction of a Bitcoin. You can stack whole sats. Instead, Cash App makes it very easy. Cash App can also be your bank account. They're offering account numbers and routing numbers to get your paychecks direct deposited into the app. They have their cash card, which uh, is incredible. I use it every day. If you haven't downloaded the app, Make sure you do so using the code stacking sats. It's S-T-A-C-K-I-N-G-S-A-T-S. You're going to get $10. $10 is going to go to our good friends at Owls Lacrosse. That's Owls Lacrosse. This rip was also brought to you by our good friends at Unchained Capital. Unchained Capital is here to be a partner with you. They're not an app. They're not a faceless business. They want to help you secure your Bitcoin, not only for you, but for your children, your grandchildren, great-grandchildren, and beyond. They're here to be a partner with your generational wealth and what they do best, one of the things they do best is collaborative custody. All right. You don't want to have a single point of failure in your custody model. If you have all your Bitcoin on an exchange and it's just sitting there, that is a single point of failure. That uh, exchange is a trusted third party that can rug pull you one day. If you have it on a single SIG wallet, that is also a single point of failure. If you lose that wallet and the seed phrase that backs it up, you are shit out of luck. Unchained has a collaborative custody model for you that is personified in their vault product. Not personified, but it plays out in their vault product. It is a two or three multi-sig. You hold two keys. Unchained holds one. Uh, you can always move your Bitcoin in and out of that vault at your volition uh, there. But if you're ever in a pinch, Unchained is there uh, to be the second in the two or three multi-sig setup. Uh, they have a white glove concierge service that's going to take you from zero to having a vault set up with a thousand cuck bucks worth of sats in it. If you tell them TFTC sent you, you're going to get $50 off. And with this package, you get multiple video conference calls, get you comfortable, multi-sig, comfortable with the vault. Uh, they're going to send you hardware wallets, set them up, help you set them up, teach you how to set them up. And then again, they're going to dump a thousand cuck bucks worth of sat into the vault after you get it set up. Uh, tell them TFTC sent you $50 off. Go check out everything they have going on at unchained.com. This rip was also brought to you by good friends at Brains. Brains. Brains is the team behind Slush Pool, the oldest Bitcoin mining pool in existence. They're also the team behind the Brains OS Plus firmware. Brains OS, Brains OS Plus firmware is firmware that you download onto your ASIC and allows you to stack more sats with your hash. If you have an ASIC model that is compatible with Brains OS Plus firmware and you're not downloading it and using it, you're leaving sats on the table. It's as simple as that. So go check out brains.com, B-R-A-I-I-N-S.com. Check out their BOS Plus page and find out if the ASICs that you're running are compatible with it. And if they are, I would download it. Uh, if you have brains download on your ASIC and you point your hash at slush pool, you're going to get 0% pool fees. And on top of that, while you have your mining uh, operation set up and you want to check profitability, stats, uh, cost to mine, all that good stuff, put in your electricity cost, how many watts you're pulling with your ASIC, uh, how many terahashes it's producing, go to insights.brains.com. Uh, you're going to get a bunch of information pertaining to all that data. That's I-N-S-I-G-H-T-S dot brains, B-R-A-I-I-N-S dot com to check that out. 
This rip is also brought to you by Compass Mining. Compass Mining is here to get more individuals into the mining game. All right, you go to compassmining.io, you can purchase an ASIC, have it sent to your house. And then Compass Mining has an at-home mining team that's going to uh, support you when you're trying to do that. It's not very straightforward on how to get ASIC set up. You can't just buy an S19 and plug it into your wall at home. You probably don't have the electrical infrastructure set up to do it. So if you go to compassmining.io, you get an ASIC, you get it sent to your house. They're going to have an at-home support team there. It's going to walk you through what you need to have set up at your house, how you get into your ASIC uh, and connect the IP to a pool to have SAT stream to a wallet of your choice. Uh, yeah, it's as simple as that. You can go buy an ASIC, get it sent to your house, and they have an at-home support team that's going to tell you what you need to make sure that you can plug it in and have it up and running as soon as possible. They have an incredible blog, uh, newsletter, excuse me, uh, and uh, podcast run by Zach Bull and Will Foxley as well. They're putting out incredible mining content. So go check all this out at compassmining.io. This rip was also brought to you by our good friends at HODL, 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 HODL is here to bring you a peer-to-peer -peer lending platform. You go to lend.hodlhodl.com and you'll be able to put your Bitcoin up as collateral in a two or three multi-sig. You hold one key, your counterparty in the trade holds one key, and HODL, HODL holds the third key. Uh, the beauty of this is you put your Bitcoin up as collateral, you get stable coins at liquidity, uh, and you know <clears throat> that your Bitcoin is not being rehypothecated because you have one key. You can always see into that wallet to know that your sats are there. And if you're paying back the loan, uh, plus the interest that you received with the the uh, the stable coin liquidity that was provided to you, you're going to get your sats back at the end of the day. Alternatively, if you have stable coins, if you're a stable coin person, you want to get yield on that, you can enter the lend.hodlhodl.com marketplace, put your stable coins up to be lent out plus interest so you can get yield on that. So go check all this out at land.hodlhodl.com and enjoy this conversation with Mike Brock. Okay. You've had a dynamic where money's become freer than free. If you talk about a Fed just gone nuts, all, all the central banks going nuts. So it's all acting like safe haven. I believe that in a world where central bankers are tripping over themselves to devalue their currency, Bitcoin wins. In the world of fiat currencies, Bitcoin is the victor. I mean, that's part of the bull case for Bitcoin. If you're not paying attention, you probably should be. Probably should be. Probably should be. Mike Brock, what is and what ought to be? <laughs> we're, getting, we're starting off with a, with a philosophy already. We're getting right into um, what it. What is and what ought to be. Um, well, uh, well, I mean, that's, that's a complex question. Um, what is, and what is not to be, I mean, I mean, um, I think you're obviously referring to my, uh, get it, you know, my, my, my delving into Hume on Twitter, um, in this conversation around natural law. Um, so, I mean, so yeah, I mean the, the, the conversation I, I was having on Twitter, uh, I guess with, uh, some some folks from, I guess the Mises Institute in, in Australia uh, or something um, uh, was really just around this idea that um, natural law um, can't get around the is ought problem. Um, there's a there's a Hume David Hume um, had a conjecture that you cannot get from an is statement to an ought statement. Um, the uh, there are is statements in the world like the the sky is blue. I am a human. Um, oxygen is in the atmosphere, uh, like all these things that we can just sort of like take stock of. There's this giant set of things um, that is. Um, and Hume said, you, 
as many, as many as is statements as you pile up about like, you know, the world around you and, and the things that you know, and, and the set of knowledge, you can't actually take that and derive an ought statement from it. You can't get from, you know, uh, an elephant is an animal, an elephant, you know, is, you know, a plant eater to, you know, an elephant, you know, ought, you know, to be given a right. Like you can't get there in Hume. So Hume sort of, you know, took the sort of stick and, and beat the Aristotelian view over the head, which is that, you know, you can't, you can't derive purpose from it. And that's, that's kind of the, the big sort of, um, uh, like idea around the is ought problem. Um, and so that then therefore the argument is you can't really derive natural law, uh, purely rationally, which leads to a big split in sort of the, the, the view around ethics and morality. And this represents like a big sort of, uh, uh, you know, there's a space, um, within sort of political philosophy of those who believe that you, that you can, uh, which sorry, Murray Rothbard and, and Hop and, and Walter Block and, um, a bunch of, you know, libertarian scholars believe that you can. That's like sort of a, I guess, like Rothbard, the Rothbardian school. And then there's a whole other school of thought. Um, on the other hand, like F.A. Hayek, for example, like did not agree with that. Neither did Mises, by the way. Mises didn't accept Rothbard's um, natural law um, theory. Um, and so there's actually like uh, sort of this really weirdly unknown sort of like schism in, in sort of how to build up like morality and ethics, even within sort of libertarianism. Um, and that was kind of what I was was getting at. Yeah, Rothbard thought Mises was a uh, was a socialist, <laughs> which is hilarious. I, I don't uh, yeah, I don't, I don't I don't agree with that. I mean, I mean, yeah, I mean, and, and Hoff mm-hmm. thought you know Milton Friedman was like a flaming ultra left socialist too, which seems crazy on its face. Um, so yeah, yeah, it's um, it's it's funny. Uh, diving into this stuff because I studied economics and uh, I didn't major in philosophy, but used all my uh, electives on philosophy in, in college and, and after it wasn't until after college and I dove into currency markets and stuff. So I started learning about like the Austrian school and, and uh, the fights within the Austrian school. You had Rothbard versus Mises versus Hayek and mm-hmm. uh, they all have differing opinions and, and philosophies and I guess first principles types of thinking uh, for these grand ideas. But I think uh, at the end of the day, they all have uh, a very similar aim, which is to, to empower the individual to to basically make the world a better place, um, which is why we're here to talk. I think all three of us, Matthew, myself and, and you, Mike, uh, believe that Bitcoin is a very good tool for the individual in the digital age. Is that a correct assessment? Absolutely. I mean, I, I think it's one of the most exciting technologies for many different reasons. Um, I, I have, you know, we, you know, we can relate back to this conversation around how I may have a little bit of differences on 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 why I think Bitcoin is so important, you know, to our future. Um, but I, I I think that that it is a very important, um, you know, technological, social, and cultural. Um, development that I think addresses a whole series of problems, not just money, um, but also, you know, the more broadly, the, the concentration of power, like attached, you know, attached to um, money. And I think that it's a, you know, I, I mean, to me, I think it, 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 it might actually be like the, the, the one thing that um, I look at today um, 
that gi- that gives me sort of hope that we can sort of push back against some of these um, really what I would say are asymmetric risks to the continuation of of human freedom um, around the world. And it's not just like you know I, I'm, I'm not and it's not just like the the Federal Reserve printing money. It's it's also about like the concentration of power and in, in authoritarian countries and, and the use of uh, you know uh, the, the weaponization of the internet um, in, to engage in mass surveillance to um, control to influence people like the this sort of scary emergence of using artificial intelligence and machine learning um, to mass manipulate um, uh, populations um, through like extremely like scary like levels of propaganda um, and I think Bitcoin sort of like kind of touches on all these things in, in very interesting ways. Um, and I, and I think it is, um, a hopeful technology. Uh, that's what I'll say. Yeah. Most certainly hopeful technology. And for any of you freaks out there, like who the hell is this guy? Who are we talking? We're talking to Mike Brock from, (laughs) (laughs) is is it correct? So you're the product lead at TBD. Marty skipped that spot. Yeah. So I leave. So TBD is a, uh, a business unit at Square. Um, mm-hmm. It is one of our four business units. Um, at, well, I, I just said Square. I'm sorry. We are uh-huh. now Block. Uh, it is force of habit. Uh, to been working at the company for over eight years, so it's, it's hard to um, <laughs> to change that. So, so you know, we're at, so we are one of the four business units at Block. Uh, you know, the others being Cash App, Square, um, and uh, Title. And so we are a full fully like independent business unit within the organization um, that is working on this technology that we're talking about today, like TV decks, but more broadly, you know, building out financial infrastructure um, for this decentralized world. And we could talk a little bit about that too, and sort of how we're thinking about that in the future and how, you know, um, TV decks is sort of our first major project sort of plays into maybe a, a longer term vision of, of, of what we see we can do um, to make the world a better place. Yeah, I definitely want to get into all that, but I think it's important to set the stage for your involvement personally at Block uh, and Cash App and Square before that and how you got to where you are uh, leading the TBDEX initiative within Block uh, because I, I don't think people understand the amount of influence you've had on on Block as a company and its uh, as sub-companies uh, over the course of, of its life. Yeah, I mean, I've been, I, I've been at the company, like as I said, for over eight years. Um, uh, it's the longest place I've ever worked at. I'm, I'm sure it's, it's a place I've worked at the longest, more than any other job. Um, and I've been, and I've, and I've worked on some some things um, over the years. When I when I and when I joined Square, we were about you know a little more than three hundred employees uh, globally, and and today we're like eight thousand. So um, it's been a quite a uh, quite a like a ride, um, to, to take a company from that small and, 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 and help build it to this level. Uh, I, I joined the company originally directly onto what is now known as cash app. Um, I was, you know, in the first, uh, dozen or so employees, um, that, that assembled together to create this really crazy idea for a, a P2P, um, payment product, um, that, you know, that ultimately, you know, be, became the sort of the, the Venmo competitor um, of at, at Square and then ultimately, um, uh, you know, with its trajectory, at, you know, we, we, we sort of became the number one um, consumer financial uh, P2P app in the United States. 
And so I, I was definitely very involved in, in a lot of the um, initiatives that um, that led us there. Um, I, I worked uh, on our instant settlement uh, product within Cash App that ultimately was our you know one of our major differentiating features in in, in the initial years. Uh, this the idea that you could get payment um, or you could cash out your payment directly to your bank account instantaneously. I worked on our consumer banking strategy, uh, which, you know, uh, uh, encompasses the cash card program. Um, and then sort of the, I guess my third major act was Bitcoin, um, in 2017. Uh, I worked very closely with Jack and, and a few other members of the team on, uh, a hack week project, uh, to put, bring Bitcoin into, um, cash app in January of 2017. Uh, the initial idea, uh, for that was actually um, actually quite simple, uh, nothing like we have today. Um, Jack wanted to buy a coffee uh, from Blue Bottle with Bitcoin, um, and he wanted to he wanted to be able to do that, um, you know, within within the the by the end of the hack week, um, which we sort of accomplished. Uh, the hack week <laughs> only lasted until Friday. Uh, we didn't get it working until the next Monday. So technically we cheated a little bit. Um, uh, but we got it working. Um, we were able to add a, a wallet into, into cash app and we were able to load funds into that wallet and we were able to build, you know, um, a feature that automatically converted that Bitcoin back into dollars to fund the actual card transaction. Um, and so that was that was the the, the first time I had ever even touched Bitcoin. I didn't know anything about it, honestly, even before that. I knew it was, I knew I knew of it. Um, I knew nothing about its technical implementation. So you know, we we really had to, you know, like learn on the fly. Um, and and we built that in a week. And in a sense, the rest is kind of history. Um, ever since that moment, I've sort of had my hands in pretty much everything we've done at the company um, to do with Bitcoin. Uh, you know, I was responsible for, you know, setting up Square Crypto, now now, now Spiral. Um, I led the, you know, I led all the interviews to figure out who was going to come in and lead it. And ultimately, I went with Steve Lee. Uh, and, Great and, choice. And now to, yeah, and, and, and now today, I, uh, I'm, I'm running our, our new, newest business unit, which is focused completely um, on, on this set of technologies. So that's kind of a high-level overview because uh, I don't want to spend 30 minutes doing a biography, but I think, I think that's, I think that's a, a pretty good well, big bullet points of my, of my contributions to square. I do want to get into the man behind TV decks and all these things at square, like the hack week specifically, like I, I'm surprised that was like the first time you interacted with Bitcoin. Like well, what stuck out to you during that uh, about the protocol and attempting to implement it into what you guys are doing at square. Yeah, I mean, this is where I just have to kind of give Jack like a lot of credit here. Um, and you know, there, I, Jack actually told this story at uh, um, at uh, at the consensus conference uh, in in 2018 um, up on stage with Elizabeth Stark. Um, so you know, it has been told before, and it's not apocryphal. Um, he actually had to work quite hard uh, to convince me uh, to even like give like to even like look at. It. Right. Like he came to me on a Monday uh, or, or sorry. Yeah. The Monday of, of the hack week, I think, and said, I want to, I want to do a hack week project with you and I want to do Bitcoin. And I actually told him, no, um, I didn't want to do that. I wasn't interested in doing Bitcoin. Um, I also even wasn't even going to 
participate in the Hack Week at all. I was very focused on, at that time, on getting Cash Card um, out the door. And so I was working on that, and we were several months away from, from being able to, to launch that. Um, and, yeah, we, you know, he, he sort of, like, camped out at my desk uh, for the entire day um, and told me that he wasn't going to leave until I agreed to do Bitcoin. And I finally broke down uh, in the morning on the morning on Tuesday and agreed to do it. Um, so he kind of deserves all the credit for pushing me into it. Uh, I, I can't actually, I can't like tell a story that I was somehow like enlightened or anything like that. I was, I was actually, if anything, I was kind of like, what the hell is this? I don't understand like how this matters. I don't know why we would do this. This is crazy. Um, I obviously don't think that anymore, but like that, I mean, I, at the time it was kind of really pushed on. Um, and I'm glad he did. I'm glad, you know, Jack sort of, you know, he's really good at looking around corners and, um, you know, seeing out into the future and where things are going. And he had this really strong belief at the, t- at the time that Bitcoin like was going to matter in a big way. Um, and, and he sort of pulled me into it. I'm grateful he did. Yeah. So it's, that it's, happened in 2017. At uh, what point in 2017 was that hack, hack week? January, very beginning, right after the year. We like, this was like the, like, I mean, th- that was the other thing too. This was all kind of happening in the, in the sort of the, the hangover of the election um, right. in 2016, which had have happened obviously just weeks earlier. Um, everyone had kind of come back and everyone was sort of like what happened. Like, you know, obviously the world didn't feel the same anymore. And, um, and so, yeah, that, that was, that was right then, right, right in the, in the middle of all that. And then morass. what was the public launch of Bitcoin on cash app? Yeah. So we launched the beta, uh, to a whole bunch of customers by fall uh, of that year. And then we didn't go into general release until early 2018. Gotcha. I don't, I don't remember the exact date, but I, but we, we members of the public were using it, um, by, I think around Thanksgiving of, of 2017. Yeah. I definitely uh, have, I definitely have some December 2017 buys on cash app that I can go check. I think that's when I started using the app. Um, no, it's nice to know that Jack's like a typical Bitcoiner. He just pesters people. Teases them into getting into it until they finally relent. Um, but yeah, I mean, I'm thankful that he did. Number one, because Cash App, disclaimer, sponsor of the podcast. Uh, they, I mean, it's just one of the easiest ways to get people in. Like, go to Cash App. Millions of people already have it. The UX is impeccable. And you guys are really leaning into Bitcoin, specifically giving it... Uh, front and center real estate, regardless, I mean, we're definitely going to get into this conversation, regardless of what you think of KYC AML from a branding and just uh, sort of pushing Bitcoin into the public sphere and, and pop culture specifically, especially with the partnerships you guys do with people uh, like Meg the Stallion, I think Gwyneth Paltrow is on the team now, uh, Max Verstappen, uh, Cash App Block in general has done an incredible job of of really bringing Bitcoin to the fore of the public conversation um, via your products. And, and it's just been incredible to see somebody, or excuse me, a company, uh, the stature of Block, uh, step in and, and put put your neck out like this uh, on, on behalf of Bitcoin. And, and like you said, it's probably a testament to Jack's vision, but uh, getting everybody on board and, and implementing it into all your products has just been extremely impressive. And like Matt said, going from that hack day, in the beginning of 2017, having it rolled out by the end of the year, and now 
seeing what you guys, yeah, seeing what you guys have done yeah, now I mean, in three yeah, years. Yeah, I mean, I mean that that's actually kind of the more interesting story, right? Is is how did we, as a publicly traded company, um, in 2017, go from you know having nothing to do with it? I mean, in Bitcoin in 2017, it was still like very. It, it wasn't the mainstream thing that it is today. Um, you know, you, you turn on CNBC today and there's a Bitcoin ticker in the bottom right-hand corner like all day now, which is like, wow. Um, but like that wasn't a thing back then. Um, and it wasn't even clear to me when we decided that we were going to go for it, that we were going to develop this and launch it to the public, that we were going to be able to get through all the regulatory hurdles and, the, um, you know, convince the, you know, the, the, our, our, our partners within our value chain um, to kind of go along with it. There was intense amount of skepticism about doing it, not just from me. Um, you know, I, <laughs> I, 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 I had that skepticism at the beginning, but, um, you know, even after I sort of like agreed to do it, I then had to turn around and, and, and kind of go to war uh, against, you know, some of the most intense skepticism that um, I've ever experienced in my professional life. Um, you know, both inside the company and, and, and outside the company. Um, I, I, I think it, I think it's a really, uh, it's actually kind of a really interesting story, uh, how we, how we did that. It probably would take up two or three hours to fully tell it. Um, but it was certainly filled with lots of drama and twists and turns of like how we actually were able to break through the barriers that, that, um, stood in the way of us actually being able to, to turn, turn the switch on. What were, we don't have to get into the two to three hour story, but what were like the biggest <laughs> hurdles with it? Uh, like treating Bitcoin the asset, like custody, uh, just how to define it on the balance sheet and stuff like that. Or, it, you know, it, yeah. So, yeah, there was, a, there was a lot of that, right? Obviously, like how, how do we do revenue recognition? What's the, the balance sheet treatment? Um, you know, those were the, that, that, a lot of that though kind of came very late in the game. Um, in terms of like, you know, final, okay, we're now we're actually going to do this and this is going to be part of our quarterly earnings. So we're actually going to have to talk about it. And, um, you know, the SEC is going to have to be okay with it. Um, that actually was very, very late in the game. And, and that obviously was still, you know, a lot of stressful, you know, late nights and, and, and like hours long meetings, you know, going through, um, you know, theories of the case on the accounting treatment and stuff. And, but, you know, a lot of it was, um, the, the really like was just the fact that like nobody wanted to touch Bitcoin with a thousand foot pole, um, you know, in the traditional financial system, right? Like, you know, you walk in and you, you, you walk to a, into a bank and you say like, Hey, like we need a bank account. And they're like, what for? And it's well, we're going to be trading Bitcoin to and from it. And they're like, "What? What are you? What are you talking about? What? Are, what are you? What are you? Are you? Are you? Are you kidding me? No, no, absolutely not. Right? Like that was kind of like, we understand you're Square and you're this big company, but like we'd rather not do that. So go somewhere else. Um, that like that was that was probably like the, um, you know, I don't want to like get too far into like you know like specifics of like you know, who and what and how, obviously there's non-disclosure agreements and such that have to be respected. But, um, there was just like massive skepticism throughout the entire fight. It, it honestly, you don't really have to talk about NDAs really, because it was really just everyone, like a hundred percent people in the financial system were just like not cool with it. Um, and that was part of the big, uh, the big, the, the, the big hurdles that we had to jump over and, and, and really, 
like fight to get people comfortable with the idea of doing it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, again, thank you for doing it. Company of block stature doing this is, I think, massive cultural uh, point in history for Bitcoin. Uh, again, having the chutzpah to put a to put your your balls on the line and stand up for this and fight through all that adversity, I think will be looked back upon as a, a, I mean, somebody had to do it first, and it seems like you you guys were one of the first, which will be will be a cool historical sticking point. Um, the first. Sort yeah. of external Bitcoin company. I mean, it's going to sound like I'm kissing Jack's butt again, but like, I mean, he deserves so much of the credit because um, Jack knows I, I, you know, I'm, I have no problem disagreeing with him when I disagree with him. Um, but, um, you know, he, he really like had to hold the line too. Um, Cause uh, there was a, like the skepticism was as much in his direction as it was mine. Um, like, like, what are you doing? Like, you know, like, why, like, like, why would you take the company in this direction? This is going to ruin our reputation. Um, and he had to really fight back against that and really sort of hold the line. Um, and it took a lot of, I think, bravery on Jack's part uh, to um, provide the the space that was needed to, to actually get it done. Yeah. And this provides a great transition to uh, talking about TB decks, because I'm sure the headaches are only going to get larger from here with what you're trying to accomplish with with the uh how would you describe it it's an open protocol right uh, again i re re reread i didn't write it uh the white paper today uh and i think let's dive into tb decks number one why and then we'll get into the how because there's many parties you have did uh decentralized identity you have uh, pfis participating financial institutions you have vcs which is funny uh considering the uh the last few weeks about vcs are uh um, what are, I just forgot, uh, verified credentials as well. Um, so there's many variables that come into play with this protocol. First, let's get to the why of TB Dex. How did it come to be? Why are you building it? And then we'll get into the specifics of how it actually works. Yeah, the way that I would sort of maybe preface everything I'm about to say and to sort of just maybe establish my thinking and, and how we approached it is that I just believe that if you want to change the world, um, if you want to bring about systemic change, um, whatever it is in, in, in culture and in politics and business and technology, you have to accept where you are, like, where are you standing? Like what, like what, like what are the, the, the limitations that I'm working with right now? Um, you know, you can't, you, you can't build a rocket ship if rocket fuel hasn't been invented. Right. Like, I mean, it, it, there's, there's, you have to sort of put the, you know, like put all the sort of pieces on the table and say, this is what I'm working with right now. Um, and there is a gap between the, the, the capabilities that I want to exist in the future to support this vision. Um, and the sort of the, the, the tools that are in, in my toolbox. And I think that I really, you know, and I've, I've tried to do that my my whole career, um, you know, in my travails at, at Square, I always try to talk, start from a very intellectually honest, you know, starting point um, and then, you know, work towards that future. And, and so it was within that frame that we really started to explore this idea of like, okay, well, how can we, um, how can we make, you know, Bitcoin and, and, uh, and you know, decentralized financial services more generally more accessible 
And the big thing that just I kept coming back to, and this is something that I'd, I'd been obsessing over since we'd, we'd, we'd started working on Bitcoin in 2017, was that you know there's there's sort of this really kind of fatal conceit almost you know at the at, at the sort of the center of the user experience of Bitcoin, which isn't which isn't Bitcoin's problem. I mean, Bitcoin does a really good job at, at solving the problem it's trying to solve, but the reality is is that you know most of us, almost all of us, uh, you know we we still have to transact in. In, in fiat currency and in the traditional financial system with using the traditional payment system um, subject to, you know, the, the rules and the regulations and the limitations of that system. And it, there, there's just kind of really no way to sort of just like pack up and, and, and move to this new world in a wholesale way because there's just real network effects there, right? Like the, the, the consequences, I mean, you could do it, I, I suppose, but you would have to accept like very significant limitations on your daily life or move um, to El Salvador. Know, yeah. Or move or move to El Salvador. Um, and so, you know, I, I looking at this, I, you know, I just asked myself like, well, what, what are the things that we can do to accelerate, accelerate our progress towards that future, taking into account like where we are today. And I really always just kind of kept coming back to this idea of like on ramps and off ramps. Right. That, you know, the more slippery the pipes to Bitcoin and from Bitcoin are, then, you know, that, you know, that has, you know, we can, we can kind of go back to philosophy and economics a little bit. But like just like, you know, the, the, the argument there is like more sort of liquidity that there are between, you know, markets, you know, markets of fiat and and markets of Bitcoin, um, the more. Uh, easy it will be to adopt the less pricing risk, the less counterparty risk, the, all these things that would like ultimately reduce transaction costs, and then ultimately you know start to like change the equilibrium between the the trade offs of, of Bitcoin, whatever it is, like pricing volatility, you know transaction costs, you know the time spent, um, you know like going into an exchange and like getting money in and getting money out with like all these really crappy payment systems like ACH. Um, and, and just, and just try, trying to like find a way to, to, to abstract that all away in a way that like makes that, so that, that liquidity bridge as slippery as possible. Um, and so I've just kind of obsessed with this idea for a long time. And when I looked at Bitcoin and, and I asked myself, okay, well, you know, um, I'm a big, you know, supporter of like the lightning project and, um, the work that they're doing to, um, you know, scale Bitcoin payments. Um, and, you know, it's, it's a very, you know, I think it's very exciting and I feel it's really started to come up into its own in the last year, but I think it still doesn't really address this problem, right. Of like trying to like get people, you know, to, um, pick up and, and move to this, this new system. And I think, and I think if we're going to do that, then, then we have to like be really honest with ourselves. Um, you know, the biggest layer two protocol for Bitcoin today are exchanges. I mean, like, that's like that, like that's, that's just true, right? Like, you know, I mean, you, I mean, I, I know people might cringe at me saying that, but like, you know, Cash App and Coinbase and Gemini and these companies, they're, they're essentially like centralized layer two protocols for, you know, uh, you know, for these systems. And as long as that's true, there's actually kind of really, uh, I think the incentive structures to long-term adoption have significant problems 
And so, you know, it doesn't, that obviously doesn't change the fact that the payment system is still regulated. It's still shitty. It's still slow. But, you know, I, I, I looked into my, my toolbox of, you know, the last eight years of, of, of working at a company that operates in traditional financial services. And I asked myself, like, well, well can, can, we do, can we do this better? Um, we know a lot about payments. We know a lot about managing risk in payments. We know a lot about um, regulatory compliance and, and, and how to deal with that and how to, how to um, attenuate the, the impact on, on, on customer experience. Can we take that? Can we abstract that away? Um, can we find a way to maybe even commoditize that? And this is sort of like, you know, this, this is sort of the progression that kind of gets you to this, like, idea that starts to become TV decks. And so TV decks, I think, like, at the end of the day is a very, like, just intellectually honest take on, like, where we are um, and, like, you know, and, and where we need to be. And it solves a problem that's very specific to that context. And so there's this reaction that people have when they say, well, it's, it, why, is it a, a, why is it not a trustless system? Well, it's very simple because tautologically speaking, fiat's not a trustless system. And if you're exchanging crypto for fiat, both sides of that transaction have to be trustless for the exchange mechanism to be trustless. And so by one side of that not being trustless, it's tautologically true. There's that word again, tautologies, um, that, that the system is not, is, it can't be trustless. So we look at this and we say, okay, well, like we can't solve that technologically. Uh, there's no real way around the fact that, that the payment system is not, you can't do an atomic swap with a bank account. You can't do an atomic swap with like, you know, a visa or a MasterCard. There's no way to do this. There, in fact, reversibility of payments is built in as a feature of these systems. Um, and so there's no fighting against that. Like if you can try all you want and you'll get nowhere. And so what we say is, well, how is the, How do we really solve this, this problem? Well, how are we solving this problem today? And can that be abstracted into something that's, that's at least more open and more decentralized? And the big idea is that, well, we, the way we solve it is through these webs of social trust in the real world. Um, we have social trust with Cash App or we have social trust with Coinbase that, that they will do the right thing, that they won't just keep our money and not give us Bitcoin, that they will like, make good on mistakes that they will be accountable for, you know, the performance of the services that they that they promise to perform um, contractually, and that's a system of social trust, um, and we take it for granted. And so the TVDEX protocol kind of looks at that and says, well, what if we can look at technologies like decentralized identity and verifiable credentials? What if we can model that social trust, maybe not in a purely trustless way, um, because we've already established that that seems to be tautologically impossible, but then at least build a way in which people can, in, in a far more decentralized way, build up these networks of trust to accomplish the same thing, to be able to interact with these, you know, these systems that have, that have these impedance mismatches, and at least build something that can long-term drive down risk, drive down cost, and can universalize and commoditize the exchange markets between fiat and crypto. That's basically the, the, the general like, idea. And I think it's one that's just very, you know, uh, steeped in just like, you know, reality and just like the fact that like, I can't fix fiat. 
We think crypto fixes fiat or Bitcoin fixes fiat. Um, but if that's true, we still need to get people there. Someone has to, there has to be a, a train that they can catch. And that's, I think that's what we're trying to build with TV decks. Yeah. Many thoughts after that, that eloquent description of what you're doing. Number one, it's very human, human of you. Uh, to say <laughs> Bitcoin is this way, it's second layer, and it should be this way. Maybe it ought to be this way. Uh, just an observation. Number two, I do like... Uh, so uh, is it a correct assessment to essentially say that you're trying to re not realign incentives, but change the incentives between the individual and a trusted third party by maybe leveling the playing field and uh, having some of these trusted third parties act in ways which is more beneficial to the end user? I think that's a really great way of putting it. I don't think I would. I don't think I would quibble with that. Yeah. Um, and so, how do, how do we get how do we get here? I guess let's get into like the mechanics of it. How does this? So essentially, the way I understand it is a me- messaging protocol that is interoperable, that uh, free and open source wallet softwares can plug into, as well as these trusted third parties with varying degrees of necessary uh, credentials on the end users' parts. Yeah, I think I think there's a. I think there's a few subtle, like the, the, the obvious criticism that um, is the first one. It's the first one that occurred to me because uh, like I, I try to be introspe- introspective and self-critical, you know, in my own ideas is that like, why would anyone adopt this? Right. Like why would, why would a uh, bank adopt this? Like why would any tra- traditional financial service adopt this system? Um, it do- It seems very, you know, uh, counter to their business goals. It seems very counter to the sort of the general um, trend of like wanting to kind of keep people inside walled gardens and, um, and not actually commoditize on ramps and off ramps. That's actually kind of the counter into like, that's actually the, the, the thing that a lot of services typically don't want to do. They want, they want you to, you know, set up shop inside their ecosystem and they want to make it very hard to leave. And a protocol like TBDEX would appear uh, to be um, a very, like a, a shot across the bow of that. And to bury the lead, it, it is. But I think it ignores a few fundamental things, right? Which is that, um, you know, I think one, um, I think consumer choice is a very powerful um force and two and this is just actually just very true of of any market there are a lot of incumbents in any market that stand to lose a lot you know if their business models are disrupted but there's also a lot of non-incumbents that stand to gain a lot from new models of business and new ways of doing things and we see this with fintechs like block you know, and, and other, and other companies like, you know, that are in the space are investing in the Bitcoin ecosystem and open systems. You see it even outside FinTech, right? Like right. I used to work at, at Red Hat, which is a open source software company now owned by IBM. Um, but they have found business models around building things that they give away for free. Um, and they sell services and support and professional services uh, to monetize that public good that they're investing in. And those models have actually been wildly successful. I mean, we're talking on the internet right now. I'm 
I, the amount of open source software that's standing between my voice and yours right now is like, is like insane, right? Like everything from, you know, the, the web protocols to the, almost certainly the Linux servers that the, that, that, that this is running on, um, and all the open source, like middleware and software packages that have been sort of compiled into the source code, um, you know, open source is one of the most like wildly successful technological inventions in history. And I think a lot of people, it's sort of invisible to a lot of people, but if you sit back and think about it, the degree to which it's changed the world and has benefited so many, um, including us right now, um, is amazing. And I look at say something like TV decks and the fact that yes, it, it, it challenges existing business models, but it also creates new ones. And there's a lot of, folks out there that um you know like fintechs like you know crypto companies that look at say something like this and they actually see wow like on top of this we can build an entirely new ecosystem of you know financial services and and other types of services that create business models that didn't exist before and so the tvdex model is very optimistic and and looks at that and, and says that like i i i think that that I, I, that there's many other people out there that will believe in this future and will and will come and help us build it, and that's actually largely borne out. Actually, like we, since we launched the white paper, we've had amazing conversations with some uh, really really large players, uh, maybe some even unexpected ones that are like, you know what? Actually, like this is great. We would really like to pay less money for payments, like accepting payments or sending payments or. Like you know, not being held captive to, you know these these existing systems, which are terrible, and we lose lots of money on fraud, and the the payment system's unreliable, and 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 what you find with these things is there's always people that have something to gain, um, and so I think that yeah, I think I think that 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 I'm very optimistic that despite the fact that that the that TV Dex is is so disruptive in the sense that it's at of these business models at its core that, that, yeah, I think, I think there's enough hungry people out there willing to embrace this change because they recognize that there's other aspects of their business that would greatly benefit from, from that. Um, we, we actually talk about this phenomenon like all the time on the show because we see it firsthand in Bitcoin all the time uh, because Bitcoin is this, you know, open monetary network. And you usually see challengers are the ones who will move uh, rather than the leaders in the space. The challengers will be the ones who move into uh, these open networks, these open protocols first. You see that with El Salvador, right? It, the U.S. government didn't do it first. El Salvador did a tiny little country. You see it with MicroStrategy doing it, you know, a small tech company that no one had really heard of. And then they decided to make the first move into Bitcoin. You see it with Cash App versus PayPal. Um, and, and then what happens, what, what happens is on a long enough time scale, the challengers come in, they embrace this open network, this open protocol. And then the, the previous incumbents, the leaders in the field have to, they have no choice, but to embrace it. Otherwise they're going to get left behind. Well, it's not only embracing it too, right? It's a classic Luddite, um, the dilemma, if you will, like if you do embrace it and then you can build on top of it, leveraging its native properties to build, new tools and experiences and applications that, that were never previously possible. Um, which is just like hard, like, like, again, that's why I'm very thankful for what you guys have done at Block, is just sort of forcing it on the culture. Like, hey, it's here. We're going to start building on it. 
And uh, it's just very exciting. And I'm very excited to see TB decks come to market because I think, like you said, it, it, it is imperative to to get people access to this stuff. Like the on-ramps, like, I love the way you described it because it's another thing that we say a lot on this show, especially comparing Bitcoin to other cryptocurrencies. Me personally, I just believe that, uh, I believe there is some cool things going on in alternative blockchains. However, I think you didn't say it exactly, but I think what you were describing is there's an order of operations to all this. And you're focused on one of the first operations was actually getting people onboarded in a, in a somewhat yeah. seamless fashion. Yeah, I think the onboarding problem is like the great unsolved issue in this, in this space. Like, and I think, and I think there's a lot of it. Like, I think there's a lot of people who have their heads in the sand. I, I you know, my, my this or like, you know, people would come to me and say, what are you talking about? This is all solved. Like, look at this app I have on my phone. It does all the things. And I'm like, okay, well, like, go and pay your taxes then. Or go and buy a coffee at Starbucks. And they're like, well, what, what do you mean? Like, it, it's just like, like the, the, the ignorance of like sort of the average person's experience is like, you know, you know real, I think really holding a lot of the community back. And, and, and by the way, I'm not, I'm not saying that there shouldn't be an element of the community who are purists. They're the ones that are sort of like, you know, driving things forward, driving, like, you know, driving Bitcoin forward, like, and, and building it to like what it is. And they deserve all the credit in the world. But there is a reality that like at a higher level that we have to build experiences for people that solve real problems. And we all believe that Bitcoin solves these problems. But, you know, but it, 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 there's the, the, the reality that onboarding into it today from a neophyte perspective is very, very hard. And it's not the sort of thing that, like, somebody who isn't, like, you know, technically inclined or isn't, like, very, very motivated for some sort of, you know, exigent reason to, like, actually jump through all the hurdles of, like, learning all of these, like, you know, uh, particularities around it. Um, and as a product development guy, I look at this and I say, like, look, this is this is where I have to focus. I have to fo- I have to find a way to um, bridge that usability gap. And I'm not and, I, and, I, and I'm trying to do it in a way that's like actually like as pure as possible. Like we said when we launched this on day one, that our guiding principle is decentralization. You know, you know, decentralized as possible with everything we do. We ask ourselves a question now as we're starting to build out the. The roadmap for TBD, like, is this decentralized? Does this advance decentralization, or does it have the, or does it have perverse incentives that could lead to centralization long term? And so we're still trying to like hold true to that. We're not trying to use, we're not trying to like use usability as a crutch to justify centralization, um, I, I, which I think a lot of, you know, I think a lot of that has happened. Um, it's even happened, I guess, like you know, I, I, like we can, I can take the blame, right? We built a, a custodial system right in cash mm-hmm. because it was the way to build the 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 most user-friendly experience but like you know uh it doesn't change it doesn't change the fact that 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 making it as easy in a decentralized way is very very hard and we've said with tbd like and starting with tv decks we're gonna start doing the things that hopefully can bring a decentralized experience to parity with the ease of use of centralized experiences. And that's sort of like where I think we need to like focus very, very heavily. And that's how we will truly unleash the the potential of Bitcoin. That's my, that's my thesis. I mean, 
What I mean, what I keep thinking about is, and I really appreciate your guys' focus on this, um, is is that you're trying to actually tackle that that U.S. dollar euro uh, interaction, right? Because that is yeah. where the the difficult question lies, which is how to interact with this trusted system that is actually very antiquated in a lot of ways. Um, that's the hard part, and like the elephant in the room right now is when you're talking about decentralized exchanges is something like Uniswap, right? And what did they do? They just they just threw out that aspect. They were like, we are not even going to bother trying to tackle going on and off uh, between, you know, crypto and and fiat into the banking system. We're just going to say, you know, they someone else figured that out. We're just going to you can use fiat stable coins, you can use these peg tokens. And it could have been just as easy for you guys to do that. Uh, but but the reality is that the hard problem here, the problem that would it would be really great if it got mitigated, if it got uh, became less less friction there and, and more competition there is actually the interaction with the, the traditional banking system. And you guys seem to be tackling that head on. So I do appreciate. Yeah. That. And, and, and I do want to admit I, I do want to say up front, too, like on, this, to, on the issue of stable coins is I, I, I do think that they are a positive in this in this like endeavor, right? Like I think the idea that, um, you know, like, I mean, we, we, we likely will uh, support stable coins with TV decks with the belief that, you know, like stable coin to Bitcoin exchange may actually be far preferable to and, and safer than having to expose say like uh, a node on the TV decks network to the pricing risk associated with, exchanging directly uh, to Bitcoin. So that's like something that we're looking at very carefully. And that, and once, once again, I think that that's just like, you know, um, a, a nod towards the fact that like we need like to solve like the problems that we have now. Um, and, and so that's actually something that we're looking at very, very carefully. Um, because I honestly, the, I, I want the, the adoption of TV decks to be as, as easy for a participating financial institution as possible and so it, it is very likely, I think, that most of the nodes will exchange dollars for stable coins. And, you know, then the next step would be stable coin for Bitcoin um, as like a way to sort of like take advantage of actually the the, the you, you could do atomic swaps then. And I think that would be a good thing because um, I really I, I think we really want to focus very specifically on how do you get, you know, value out of the fiat system and into the Bitcoin system in, in the way that's like the most least frictionful as possible. Yeah, that's another nod to what is right now, like an emerging economy is undeniable. Yeah. These these end users want the non-volatility of stable coins. They also want the volatility, the upside volatility of Bitcoin, but they, they have very little savings that they they need to protect from downside price risk, which is just a reality of of how the people in these emerging economies interact with their money or want to interact with their money. It's probably a better way to put it. Yeah, yeah I, absolutely. Yeah, and so let's get into it. Like, so another tweet you tweeted out, um, uh, I don't know if it was last week or in the last couple of weeks, I was stalking your Twitter earlier this morning. Uh, people, for some <laughs> weird reason, we find ourselves at the end of 2021, heading into 2022, that uh, decentralization is synonymous with blockchain technology. Like, and you're making the argument, like, no, it's not. We have BitTorrent. We have things like RSS. We have many other decentralized technologies that don't leverage a blockchain. Uh, you did mention in, in the white paper there there is a node topography within TBDEX. Um, 
and DIDs, obviously there's an anchor into a block blockchain at the end of the day. How are you guys creating this decentralized system and how, if at all, is a blockchain involved? So TBDEX is not a blockchain-based protocol. Um, it's, you know, a, you know, I, I, it, it is a, it's a messaging protocol, right? With, you know, a, a mechanism for, you know, discovering nodes um, in a decentralized way. And in that sense, it's, it's a lot more like a bit torrent than it is like a blockchain. Um, and like, that's, I think that that's correct, right? Like I, 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 blockchains, I think are really bad solutions for most things. Um, like it, it's, it's actually like, it's a, sh it's a slow, shitty, expensive database. It's <laughs> what, is what a blockchain is. Um, and it seems to me that like a lot of people haven't gotten that message. Um, you know, obviously like I'm not like, obviously I think it's well, also simultaneously one of the most amazing technological <laughs> inventions, but it's also like really bad at almost everything, um, except for what Bitcoin uses it for, right? <laughs> Which is like, you know, uh, building, you know, censorship resistance and and um, and and security uh, around the, the 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 ledger. That's all it's good for, in my opinion. And I think that's sort of where the fatal conceit of a lot of this Web three stuff is, right? Um, like it, it, it it's. It's almost like people haven't thought about it for more than five seconds. They just like <laughs> they see the dollar signs. Yeah. <coughs> yeah. No. It is. Sorry. Did I, did I, I feel like I didn't fully answer your question. Can you no. Like, well, I just want to dive into it. So, yeah. dive into like the node, like how in its current design, right? Because it's still an ongoing design process. A TV deck. Like, what is the, the current vision of how? somebody would enter this network both from the uh, uh the uh verified or the, excuse me the the financial institution the pfi and uh, the end user is looking who's putting an ask within this messaging protocol yeah i'm like trying to buy yeah, bitcoin with tb decks like how does that look yeah yeah sure i mean so i mean i i i, I can talk to you about how i think it'll work on day one and or and and how i think it'll work in year two and year five. Um, I think it will be very different um, at, at different sort of stages and maturations of the network. I will say though, as, as it pertains to sort of the ideas around node discovery um, right now, our, our thought process is, is to, is to really keep it simple uh, initially. Um, the idea is, is that, well, I mean, I can just stay back. I mean, like the, 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 the real inspiration that we took for how do you build, you know, this network up uh, in, a, in, in a decentralized way that sort of just takes into account the reality in which we live was to really look at the way that um, that trust is managed on the Internet today using the, the, you know, the public key infrastructure and certificate authorities and the way that it works. I mean, for people who aren't really familiar with it, the way that you get that little lock icon when you go to a website is that every web browser you use has been preloaded with a list of certificate authorities by the browser vendor, Google, Microsoft, you know, you know, Mozilla, um, whoever it is. And they've said to the browser, trust these certificate authorities. If a certificate authority issued the certificate to this website, then you can trust they are who they say they are. 
And that's how it works, right? There's just a dictionary of, of certificate authorities and every and that's local on every web browser that's 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 sort of pre-listed. And we said, you know, I mean, that's as good as any way to like bootstrap this. Um, and you know, the wallet person making the wallet, um, you know, that in- integrates with the TVDEX protocol can include a list of uh, DIDs of you know. Uh, like verifiers that they trust to uh, basically say a PFI is who they say they are. Um, and, you know, we will obviously, you know, be a PFI ourselves to help catalyze the network. And, you know, we will happily work with anyone else who wants to. And, but at the end of the day, there's no central registry. It's, it's really in the same way that it's up to a browser vendor to, you know, essentially include a, um, a preloaded, you know, you know, trust store. Um, we're sort of following that same model. We we can't really think of a way to do it in a more pure way. Um, any the, any other way just ultimately creates some form of centralization. So in a sense, we are putting a lot of uh, we are putting a lot of uh, responsibility on the implementers of wallets to you know put in you know, a list of, of DIDs that, that, that they think that their users should trust. Well, that's sort of the, the key, that's sort of the key design uh, there. And then beyond that, if these wallets are open source, you could have users uh, initiate PRs that say, hey, I, I think I like this PFI, I'd like it included in the yeah. list as well. So there's yeah. some open nature to that as well. There's no, there's no central authority. Like you can, and, and there's nothing that says that, and also, even in a web browser, right, you can add your own CA manually if people know how to do it. Sometimes you have to do that on corporate networks and stuff like that. Um, and there's no reason why someone couldn't do that. There's no, there's no traffic cops anywhere saying you can't do business with this PFI or, um, or you should trust it. What we, hope, what we hope happens is the same thing that's happened with the web, which is that there will become sort of a more a kind of a collective trust, that, right? Like we trust there's these groups of entities on the internet, some of them may be nonprofits, some of them may be for profits. And the community says, like, look, I trust this this nonprofit, you know, um entity that maybe it's like a whatever it is, like the the, the Bitcoin Foundation, right? That says like we we trust these um these PFIs and 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 so we think you should trust them too. Or or we we revoke our trust. We think you should stop trusting this guy. And um and so we're really that's that's how we're how we're doing it. Um, we think that and we think that that's the most honest way to do it. It puts, it gives control to individuals and control to the sort of the, the wallet developers. Um, it, the network doesn't impose that. And, okay. And so that's individual users and wallet developers deciding how they trust an institution on the other side of a trade, on the sell side of a trade. How does an institution establish trust or decide that they trust or don't trust an individual user? Yeah, um, I mean it's the same thing in in reverse in a sense, but obviously there's no like list of users out there. Um, so we're we're building on the decentralized identity scheme, and we have to kind of bring up this we live in reality point again, which is that if a company like Block, um, and we are a regulated financial services company, um, wants to exchange funds um, in exchange for um, an asset such as Bitcoin, we have certain regulatory requirements, right, around KYC, um, BSA, AML, um, OFAC, and a whole bunch of other acronyms. Um, <laughs> and, so, and, and, and so, you know, we, 
we have to have a way to, to deal with that in a decentralized way. We actually think that the data in VC, you know, even, even though I know there's a lot of people out there and I know you probably have a lot of crypto anarchists and stuff that are throwing up in their mouth as we talk about KYC, I would say to those, I would say, I would say to those people that like, I would much rather have a self-sovereign identity system for which you can sort of attach voluntarily, you know, uh, you know, credentials of trust for to satisfy the KYC model than to continue in the centralized world that we are today, where you go into an ecosystem like a like a centralized exchange, you go through their KYC process, they essentially own your data, they can sell your data. One of the great one of the great things about this approach and saying like we think we can still comply with the law while using this this, this technology is that this technology gives you the ability to do things like zero knowledge proofs where like, you know, rather than saying like, Hey, we necessarily have to hand over all of your personally identifiable information. We can actually get to a world where all a provider would have to do is build up a, uh, you know, build up a credence based on someone, an individual self-sovereign identity with, the attestations of like this person is above a certain age, this person has a credit score above this or whatever that without even necessarily having to diverge that, but to be able to have these zero knowledge proofs that can attest to that in a way that's mutually through mutually trusted third parties is actually a way I think to at least, I mean, not completely, I'm not going to argue this is like, you know, some sort of anarcho utopia, but it does actually go a lot of the way to shifting you know, control of information back to individuals, even though I, I have to admit that like there still is the, the reality that people have to identify themselves um, to a regulated entity. But using this technology, we can actually reduce the surface area of that data exchange substantially. And we can actually create an account model that's more secure, less susceptible to fraud. Like, I mean, if you think about it, like rationally, um, like, you know, like, how do we, like, do KYC today? We take a picture of our driver's license, a piece of plastic, and we basically upload it to a website. Like, that's what we do. Like, that's crazy. Like, that's crazy that we think that's secure. And something like a self-sovereign identity with an attestation that says, Mike has a, the state of California like, agrees that this DID has a, is licensed to drive in the state of California is going to be a hell of a lot more secure than a picture of driver's license and may through zero knowledge proof, not even have to require the, 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 uh, uh, the actual divulgence of the actual like driver's license information to, uh, establish the fact that I can drive. Right. And so I think that this is just like a, a really like great step in the direction of, of, of shifting the power balance in you know in the account model back to to the individual and so the tvdex protocol is saying that that's how we're going to do it um um you so know like, individuals in a wallet yeah and like in practice right in practice like right now we are like i sign up for cash app i give cash app all my personal information i sign up for coinbase and i go give them all my personal information kraken give them all my personal information bank of america give them all my personal information in practice, what this looks like is like a, a single KYC trusted provider that is that is taking all your personal information and then basically 
attesting to all these providers that they have the information without giving the information to the provider. And then ultimately, I guess, like the individual states will be doing that. It, it, it was no, a hope. I, I, I use driver's license not to suggest that, that, that we're trying to make this the government's job. Um, I, I, I think in, in practice, I mean, it, it will be mostly all private actors. Um, the, I, think, I think the way to think about it is, right, like you're trying to create a Venn diagram between the customer's, you know, identity and the attestation of their identity and the, the surface area that a PFI trusts. So in practice, say yes. So in a sense, the, the user is responsible for KYCing themselves in a sense by going out, I don't know, to finding some company that does DID KYC. And they verify who you are, who you say that right. they are. They, they put you through the rigmarole. And then they issue you an attestation, you know, a verifiable credential. And then you kind of go out and you find these PFIs that also trust the issuer of that VC and say, we both mutually trust that third party. So the fact that they KYC'd you is enough for me. Therefore, I will transact funds right. with you. That's kind of like, that's kind of, and, 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 and that's at least a far more, it's more. It's not completely decentralized. I'm not going to argue that, but it's a far more decentralized approach than we have today, and I think is a great step in the right direction right. to find a way to uh, to balance the fact that we have to comply with these laws, but we would still like the user to have a lot more control than they currently do. Yeah, and then, but rather than like Cash App holding that information, I mean, ultimately, <laughs> like the the justification for something like KYC AML laws is to stop illicit activity. Which it doesn't. Um, yeah, we're not. Yeah, we're not going to get into a debate right now about whether or not it does. Um, but so, if if the U.S. government says we think uh, this transaction is illicit activity, then basically in that scenario, you say we have this attestation from KYC provider number three. Uh, go to KYC provider number three, give them this verifiable proof, and then they can give you the personal information rather than having your personal information on a million different servers. It's on that one provider server. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, generally speaking, yeah. Well, then yeah. that begs the question, though. If it is on this one server, does that just shift honeypot risk to this one uh, depository yeah, the, repository of, this, of this information? This doesn't. This doesn't eliminate honeypot. It just doesn't, right? Like, I mean, and, and it's like one of these things where, um, like, it's just the reality is that if we're going to do this, we have to find a way to comply with the law. Um, and so we're making a bet on doing it in the way that we think is at least a lot better than than, what, than where we are today. Um and, and look, I mean, one thing I would love to see with this technology, and this isn't where we are today, but I would like to see governments around the world that recognize the fact that, yeah, these, that there's significant issues with the way that we do KYC today that exposes people to the risks of identity theft and, um, and all of these extreme negative um, you know, consequences that happen when these companies get hacked or these you know, large credit bureaus get hacked. These are terrible, like terrible concentrated risks. Uh, asymmetric risks. Um, we would love to see a technology like zero knowledge proof um, be able to be used in a sort of like a constellation of attestations of like, yes, I I will verify that this person who holds this DID has a Cash App account. I will verify that the person with this DID I've transacted with and they never screwed me over. I will verify you know that this DID that I that you know this person sold me products and they 
we're good on it. Like it could like eBay could be, you know, issue a credential that you were like an eBay, that you're an eBay seller that's done a thousand successful sales. And like, I would love to see governments be more willing to accept that this sort of more opaque ways of like building up trust as a way to like manage risk in these systems would be a far better way that would reduce the risks of people's identity being stolen, give people a lot more control. And I think this is like the power of decentralized identity and verifiable credentials. And it's one that we're going to be investing in very heavily in the coming years because we just think that it would be a much better model than the one we have today. Yeah. No, no, I can't, Matt, I know you said you don't want to go there, but I can't help but go there in my mind. Like, <laughs> it sucks that we have to design these systems in these ways around these shitty laws that really do nothing yeah. to help the end user at the end of the day. Like, how much time are we wasting designing this, this architecture around laws that arguably shouldn't exist because they're completely ineffective? Um, that's just We're, the thought. You know, in my we, mind we, right make, now. we make those, we make those arguments up on the hill. Uh, trust yeah. me, like, you know, we we're you know, we're, we are trying very hard to um, educate lawmakers and policymakers about how we agree with you like that. A lot of these policies are very ineffectual. Um, and at best, you know, to the, to the, degree, to the degree that I would, I would, argue, I would say that they, that they may be helpful in some respect uh, to the government's ambitions are always after the fact. It's like, you know, I mean, like the, like the, the, this information collected may help, you know, solve a crime long after it's already occurred. Um, it doesn't really stop it from occurring. And I think there's, I think there is a way with like technology and, and self-sovereign identity to significantly reduce the risk at the front end and, and remove the, the argument that like we have to have this privacy compromising infrastructure um, to, you know, reduce this bad activity to the degree that we do today. And that's a very hard argument to make. Uh, people are very, like, I mean, people sort of in traditional financial regulation are very distru distrustful of that. But it's something that, like, we're, you know, I, I, I'm personally championing. Yeah, well, thank you for championing. It's not only that they're distrustful, too. It's like it does provide a compliance moat as well, like, especially if you have that infrastructure built out already. It's like, ah, oh, it's just easier to keep complying because competitors can't come in and... Blah, blah, and blah, bigger blah. companies are more more capable of complying. It's not as expensive for them percentage-wise. But I, I mean, so this is why I said earlier, I mean, I think it obviously doesn't eliminate honeypot risk, uh, but it re significantly reduces it. I mean, I, we see it happen to plenty of people who enter the space. They go sign up for Coinbase, they sign up for Cash App, they sign up for Kraken, they sign up for BlockFi, they sign up for Lolly, they sign up for every <laughs> service. They send them all their personal information. Um, if it's just in one spot, uh, it's significantly better than being in eight spots. But this is why I said, like, ultimately, um, if we are going to have a KYC AML regime, I mean, I don't know how much we can count on it. And you definitely shouldn't build TBD to expect it. But uh, if, if governments actually came around and they're already holding the honeypot, the government already has the honeypot information. This literally what they do is just take all of our information all the time. Um, if you didn't have to have that third party company hold it in the first place because the government said this person's a citizen, here's, you know, a, a, stri a string of, of letters and numbers that proves it. Um, and now, you know, you, you have your due diligence that you need to have there and this is a trusted individual or whatever, then the government, then you don't have that ad even additional honeypot, right? Then you just have, it's, talk it's like reducing honeypots along the way. Yeah. Um 
I mean, I think I think that uh, I'm not, I'm not trying. I'm not, I, 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 not to sound like I'm not responding to your point, but I, you know, one of the things that I think it, I don't know, I feel like I have to say is that, you know, I, all these conversations, right, around trustlessness, like you know, uh, centralization, uh, like you know, censorship resistance, all these like sort of like like principles and act like sort of these things that we're trying to like we want to kind of be axiomatically true about these systems, but can't quite get there. I actually think is like sometimes a bit of a distraction from what I think is a, a more important value that I think is maybe the most powerful one that I think that, that I, I try to really focus on to really help ground me in how to like develop these solutions. And it's the maximization of choice, the max, like not, not, not necessarily, not necessarily the maximization of like any of these other things, but the maximization that, an individual should have the power to choose. The individual should have the power to choose to, to trust the PFI, to trust the software that they're using, to trust the, 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 you know, the, the, the people who are sort of provisioning the, the verification of their identity. And, and, and more broadly speaking, in this like sort of like you know, larger conversation we have, the right to choose whether they want to trust you know, dollars or not, or Bitcoin or not, or, you know, or, or whatever it is. Right. And, and, and really thinking about the system design through the maximization of choice and, and thinking about it through that lens. And that's kind of like how I clarify to myself, the trade-offs that I'm making, right? Like I think decentralization, I think, I think decentralization is like a really important principle that I think is important to maximizing choice for like epistemic reasons, but like, I mean, but I, I do think that that choice is kind of the, in my mind, is like the North Star. Yeah. Optionality. We're always looking to expand optionality here at TFTC. Um, we don't need to get too deep into the weeds here. We only have seven minutes left. And I just have a nagging question that I had coming into this after reading the white paper that I want to make sure I get in before we wrap up here. But do you see TB? I could go all day. I could I go all day. We could too. We could too. Well, <laughs> uh, uh, do you see TB decks as a transitionary? tool right like, yeah it's a good question I, I i think in some respects it is and i think in some respects it's not i'm glad you asked me this question because um and it actually really parlays to the point that i was like trying to make earlier um maybe i can like pull it all together i i am going to say something that might be very controversial to a lot of people right i don't think that anonymity is universally a good thing right um, and I don't think that an- anonymous financial transactions are universally a good thing. And that will shock a lot of people because then the, what immediately comes into their mind is like, well, he's basically saying that like he supports financial surveillance. That's actually not what I'm saying. What I, what, what, what I'm saying is, is that like we are the, the purpose of money, of payments, of the communication that we're having right now is to like as, accomplish ultimately social ends, right? Like, you know, you know, economic acts or social acts. And I think even if, even if we had a completely anarchist society, an anarcho-capitalist society um, in, in sort of the bent of Rothbard, which I've established, I'm not a fan of, but like, let's just put that, let's put that like on the table for a second. I still don't think you would want purely anonymous transactions across the board. And it's like not, it's not hard to like imagine why, right? Like 
would, would you really go on a like uh, an anonymous website that you have no idea who owns it? You have no ability to evaluate whether that that the the person who owns that website has any sort of reputation whatsoever to perform a service or to provide a good. Would you really do an anonymous transaction and say, I'm going to buy a teddy bear from an anonymous person on the other side of the world who I can't speak to, I have no phone number, there's no means of contact, there's no way in which to basically evaluate whether or not I have any reason to believe this teddy bear will actually show up once I send this completely non-reversible financial transaction to them. And like the second you realize that, you recognize that there is a place in which we always have to have means of establishing social trust for me to basically know you are who you say you are, not because like doing so is in service of making it easy for a state or some other like powerful entity to surveil us. I think that's a completely separate issue. I think privacy is something that we should be striving for. Financial privacy and financial anonymity to me are completely different things. Um, like anonymous financial transactions are transactions that have maximum risk because no party knows if the other one's going to screw the other one over. And so I don't think we actually want, you know, a hundred percent anonymous transactions in the sort of like when we're engaging in, in economic transactions in the social realm, that just doesn't make any sense. Would you, and I know that like, would I mean, you separate yeah, anonymity and pseudonymity? Right, like so, so could a synonymous individual yeah. building up a web of trust credit score, if you will, you you'd be fine interacting with them. Like Silk Road being a perfect example. I would say that. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I mean, pseudonymity to me is not an anonymity, right? Like we've yeah. already seen yeah. that. Like we've already seen that. Like like this like this idea that like that. I mean, anyone who's been in information technology for long enough knows that obscurity is not security. Um, and so, I would say that like you know, that the pseudonymity is pretty illusory, but, 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 but I want to say something very clear. I, I am not in support of financial surveillance. I think we should have systems yeah. that cannot be surveilled by thir- third parties arbitrarily. Like that's like, you know, that, like, like I think that we should have ways to do secure point to point, like transactions, like secure point. Like I mean, I, like I use signal, right. As my SMS messaging app, it's, it is, it's not anonymous in the sense that the person on the other side of that transaction I mean, I started that of that of that communication doesn't know who I am. Of course they do. In fact, if you're using Signal correctly, stood beside each other and we scanned each other's QR codes at some point to like verify we are who we are. What what we're optimizing for is privacy, and I think we should optimize for that, right? And and TVDEX is focused on trying to optimize for privacy to the maximum extent we can within the constraints that we have. But like anonymous financial transactions are definitely not the goal. And I just want to say that. And I know that the like, key. I mean, let, let me see if I can distill this a little bit, Mike. Uh, the, the the key here, right, is that uh, we talked about options, people having optionality. The protocol is basically agnostic to individual uh, actors' options in that situation, right? And there's going to be basically actors of different um, requirements and different uh, necessities that are basically going to be a bunch of different shades of gray along the scale of, of, of what kind of web of trust, what kind of so, social trust they want to have with the people they transact with and, 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 and open up those options to whatever. So it doesn't really matter what Mike thinks uh, a transaction should, you know, how much, how much social trust you should have in the other actor when you're doing a transaction. 
because TBD will allow all these different types of actors to basically come together and have a consensus on, on how much trust they want, right? That's absolutely right, right? Yeah. Both sides of the transaction get to set their standards of trust. Right. And, and they have to achieve an overlap in order to create a market yeah. for, for a transaction. That's, that's ultimately the, the, the kind of the central game that's theory, great. if you will. Yeah, you said this gray area, man. Like it, it goes all the way from white to black on the spectrum, like if you will, right. potentially. Um, and that middle area is somewhat gray. Mike. But the reason I, but the, but the reason why I had that spiel before is you asked me if this is a tr- transitional technology, and what I'm actually saying is like I think there is a world where TVDEX could be useful even crypto to crypto transactions, where it's desirable that. Both sides, like, it doesn't necessarily have to be KYC. I came up with other examples around sort of like how do you establish trust, like, you know, like an e, like your eBay score or something like that as like an input into this as like an attestation. But like for there to be models where like I will like, you know, send you, you know, one Bitcoin for, you know, that this used Ferrari, you know, that I want or whatever it is. Um, but I also want to trust that you are who you say you are and you're actually going to like send me the Ferrari. Um, I think there are, I think that TV decks can be extremely beneficial, like even in that world where you can essentially create common webs of trust in the social realm to over, to overlay onto these like purely crypto transactions. And I think, so I think TV decks could very much be a valid solution in that context too, long-term, even long after people stop using it as a fiat on-ramp. Hell yeah. I'd love to hear that. Like I would love to get together in person over beers, talk philosophy, TD decks, <laughs> expand on this conversation. It's been an incredible conversation. Matt, do you have anything you want to get in here before we wrap up? I just wanted to thank you for your time, Mike. I know you're you know one of the unsung heroes working in the background uh, at Block to to make Bitcoin the standard. And I just want to tell you, I appreciate you and I appreciate your time. Yeah, thank you for having me. I'll do anytime. This is super fun. Yeah, this is an incredible conversation. I want to co-sign what Matt just said. Thank you for all the work that you've done. Um, I'm excited to see TD or excuse me, TB decks come to market. Uh, good luck building that out. Seems like you've got the team in place. Uh, where can we find out more about what you're building? Can anybody con- or how people can con- contribute if they they want to, and what you guys may need right now? Yeah, um, you, I mean, so. Uh, you can find us on our, uh, unfortunately, very hard to remember uh, Twitter account. Uh, you can follow us at, you know, TBD54566975. You can also find find us at GitHub at that at that same uh, sequence of letters and numbers. So, um, and are you going to change that. that ever? No. TBD. <laughs> <laughs> no. Uh, some people have re- memorized Z-Man's uh, handle. If they can remember that, I think they can remember uh, TBD. I dig it. Five four six five five nine seven five. Mike, thank you for your time. I hope you have a great rest of your day, uh, end of your year, end of your Happy jokes. New Year. Happy New Year Happy to New you year. as well. Happy New Year, you freaks listening to this. Peace and love.